Welcome to My Friend Has Never Listened to a Podcast. We are super excited today as we are joined by the brilliant Paul Cochran, who is the presenter and host and producer of the Childers Podcast. Welcome, Paul. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here, Paul. Appreciate it. Obviously, the Childers Podcast has been released now, all 22 episodes in total. How are you feeling post-release? Oh, 22. Gee, it, it sounds like a, like a big job already when you just say 22 because that's not <laughs> what it started out as. Um, it certainly started out as something a lot smaller than that. And, and actually, it started out as a pipe dream more, more than, than, you know, what it could eventually look like. And it really did sort of unravel and, and unpack itself as it went along. Look, I feel insanely proud of it, to be honest. Um, you know, it was an independent release. It was, you know, it was purely free journalism from an, an investigative point of view, which, you know, has had very good success. It, you know, it's been well received. It's found a lot of people as opposed to me finding them. Yep. And, and for that, I'm insanely proud of it. But I think that the, you know, the, the podcast really does stand up due to the, the powerful narrative and the brave men and women who participated in it and were, and were prepared to open up and share their stories, many, many of them for the first time in 20 years. And the profound impact for me and the uh, profound impact of their storytelling of what it's meant to them since it's gone live really is the reward uh, and, and how it's helped their lives since that podcast going um, going live and, and that to me is the reward so that's what makes me incredibly proud oh, it's so cool to hear how proud you are of it because you did such a good job of bringing it together and as much as obviously you sort of pay homage to the people that brought it together and you know shared their stories the way you shaped it though was integral in terms of how it came about so huge congratulations on that front Paul yeah that's thank it. you I mean I guess in some ways Childers can potentially sit outside of the true crime genre it, it really is the you know the, the, the centrepiece of it is that the fact that this horrible atrocity happened but one of the the key things that I really wanted to make sure that we did was tell the story of the people involved and not just not not just what was happening to them when they escaped the fire but who were they as people the 15 victims but the 69 people who survived it and the, and the people in the community who were they what took them to Childers why were they there what did their day look like what was that night like you know what was mm. the sentiment in the in the hostel and and over 22 episodes we've kind of managed to piece together all these moving parts which you know, it does all come together in the end. So feedback I've had is people get a, a real sense of what that really um, vibrant hostel was like in the days yep. leading up to it. And then obviously the the magnitude of the grief and trauma which unfolded as a result of the fire. Yeah. Now you, you said you started off with a smaller number of episodes and I'm always curious about how projects kind of morph and form. So talk to us, where did you start? And obviously we know where you ended up, which was 22, but talk to us about how it was intended to start. Probably started out as a pipe dream and a, and a, and a wish list, to be honest. Uh, to probably even go back a step further, you know, I was a I was a TV reporter at the time 20 years ago when it happened and it, and it had a huge impact on me at the time. Now, I, I think that there's, a, there's sliding doors moments in anyone's lives which impact on why you go about doing things. And for me, I took on a, a new job which was 45 minutes away from where I live. And so for the first time in a long time, I was doing a commute to get to work and I started finding myself getting quite bored with my Spotify playlist and started reaching out to and finding podcasts. My real default and my passion is sport. So then I started to get a little bit bored with that even and I started to reach out a little bit more into, into what existed and found myself listening to these 
these true crime type narratives and, and digging in and that investigative piece. Now, to layer that with, I always wanted to write a book and that and I've never got that across the line. And suddenly all these pieces started to come together. And I remember one day saying, you know, I think there's more to tell about Childers. I really think that there's so many stories about the people involved and, and what happened in my own personal experience, having lived it, knowing that there was more to tell, that a, a newspaper story at say 500 words or a 90 second TV story didn't lend itself to being able to properly tell it and not giving yeah. people the full the full voice. Um, I guess when I pieced all that together <laughs> you know, with this circumstance of me having to have this 45 minute commute and that in a way has helped framed how long my episodes are, what my experience with having to get to work looked like. Then I just started thinking, well, gee, if I was going to do this, who would be involved? And started reaching out as this, you know, strange random reaching out to people on social media saying, yeah. hey, you don't know me, but I know who you are. I was there too and, and really breaking down some walls. So I think originally I... I had the idea of somewhere around 12 episodes in mind and I know mm -hmm. it kept expanding and even even I was in the back half of the series and I was still writing and I, I was like, oh, I need to add one in here. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. And at one point it was sort of 17 and then it, it ended up at 22 because story just needed to continually be told. And, and as the podcast went live and people felt more comfortable with it and people resonated with it, particularly the people involved, I actually was approached by a lot of people. People yep. came forward and said, you know, I'm really happy with how you've, you've treated our story. I'm resonating with it. You've helped me in this in this way. All these different things were coming at me. The number of private messages and emails I was getting and, and people were prepared to open that door on their life, which I'm incredibly humbled about. When you think about feedback people like to receive from their audience, talk to us about what it was like receiving feedback from in that form, that someone felt so safe and so comfortable with the way that you'd told the story that they actually wanted to share because of the work you'd done. Yeah, and that started right at the start to be honest, because people were so guarded. You know, there's some people in the in the podcast say their best friends had no idea they were in that fire. They re they've refused to open that door and yet they were prepared to do that with me. So, th so that that feeling of genuine goodwill to the story and to the people involved really started early and then okay. it continued to evolve. evolve. And you know, I've had people contact me saying, thank you for mentioning so-and-so because that person means a lot to me and I like the way you respected them through it and you know those messages are continuing to come in you know and i That's think it's the power of podcasting as well it's got a global reach and it's gone to the days when you know i'm an ex-tv reporter and we know the six o'clock news or the five o'clock news or whatever we've gone to those days when content manufacturers tell people when they can listen to things and podcasts are a perfect example of being able to have a 24-hour access on your time when you want to listen to it, how and how repetitious you want to hear content. So to know that you know, I'm getting messages from all parts of the world about this little project which started on my lounge room chair is <laughs> is really cool. That's yeah. so wicked. So satisfying for you, Paul, and very well deserved. And it's a process for me as well. I think where I had some some skin in the game, I guess, with the people involved was, you know, I had a shared lived experience. Now, I never pretended to, to think that my lived experience was anywhere near at the same level as theirs. But at the same at the same point, I did have a, my version of it. And my version was ultimately standing around with a cameraman and a microphone and absorbing it, being in the memorial three nights after the fire when we grieved the 15 people who none of us had ever met, but it really felt like we knew them. So I guess there was an immediate connection and, a, mm. and, and an ability to, I wasn't just a random reporter. And I know, you know, I, I do look at it that way that I was just a reporter, but at the same time, I had an intimate dealing with the, the event where I could have a connection. And those people who spoke so bravely in the podcast 
knew that I was coming at it from the same place as them. Now, that's not to say it was easy. Um, there were definitely walls to knock over and, you know, and trust to build up and deserve, you know, and rightly so. It has shaped these people's lives for the past 20 years and forever will, you know, forever yeah. more will. And so they deserve to be sceptical and... Trepidatious. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, have yeah. A filter about who they're prepared to tell that to. People who who haven't spoken in the podcast who have said look i it means the world to me that you did it i'm so glad that you did it but i'm still not ready Mm. and i've just said to those people look just because some guy is doing a project that doesn't mean that you have to tell your story right now your timeline is not determined by mine yeah and that's the way i've approached it and and people have appreciated that and Mm. and and i fully respect their their own lived experience it's their story to tell on their time if and when and ever they want to do that yeah yeah I'm going to ask, Paul, because you so beautifully captured all these survivors' lived experience, I was wondering if you could share your lived experience from the night of the fire and where you were and how it unraveled and just some of your internal feelings as everything was unraveling. Yeah, I mean, it's before around sliding doors moments. For me, I... I was a I was a young reporter. My first job out of university was in Bundaberg, which is about half an hour from Childers. Bundaberg's famous for its rum and its sugarcane. Yeah. And so I did two years on the, the newspaper there, on the local newspaper. I was sort of the, the cadet sports reporter, but there's not that much sport going on in small <laughs> towns that yeah. at the time I would get given, given some news stories to do. But I was sort of the peripheral news reporter and I didn't have a round. So I'd get 80th birthdays or, you know, 50th wedding anniversaries, some of those sort of stories. And I, I'm imagining Ricky Gervais in his afterlife, you know, that, that kind of small town reporter going around. <laughs> very much small town stuff. But at the same time, I, I sort of, I thought, gee, I, you know, this is a fairly I'd done two years on the paper and loved it. And I was living by cricket seasons. I had a really successful cricket team that kept losing grand finals. So I kept hanging around <laughs> to just try and rectify that. A friend of mine rang me up and one day and said, look, I'm, he was at Channel 7 and he said, look, I'm leaving. Um, you should have a go. And I'd never had any desire to want to do broadcast journalism or television in particular. But I, I just remember this one day I got given one of those stories that I kind of referred to, an 80th birthday or something like that. And I thought, oh, no, I need to be doing more here and, <laughs> and put my hand up. And somehow, I'd, honestly, they can't have had anyone else available, but I got the job. I'll give over. <laughs> oh, no, it wasn't good. It wasn't good, the, the audition tape. But, but regardless, I got the job. And on the fifth day and my fifth week was the children's fire. So I turned up at that scene as the first television reporter on scene with the biggest yeah. story in the world right there, right in front of me. Can you remember what time that was, Paul? Look, I got there, daylight had broken. So what happened was my cameraman went immediately yeah. and that's fairly normal. The cameraman will go and film it. Now, I've spoken to other people at different networks who, and they didn't go because it didn't appear initially that, that um, you know, it was probably as bad as it... As it's as big a deal, yeah. Yeah, but but Mick, uh, Mick Gray, who was the cameraman, he went and he was the sole media camera there. And he, and one of the great things that he did was he, he then got the microphone out and he actually got some reaction and some words off some of the, the backpackers as they got wow. out. This is the Nick that you interviewed in the podcast, is that correct? I loved hearing his perspective. It was really awesome to hear his point of view. And I thought he had a, a, a really relevant point of difference to bring to it you know he was there on the scene you know mick talks about how how probably the backpackers ne- didn't necessarily take it as seriously as they as they thought they just assumed everyone got out as well and then how it shifted in the days after where media was suddenly the town was swamped with it 
and the backpackers got got fairly fed up with it. The community got fairly fed up with it. And Mick fell into that. So he so his range of emotion changed a lot. Yeah, what happened was Mick came back to Bundaberg. Now this is we didn't have satellites, we didn't have what now now you have media rooms walk around with backpacks on and can via the internet. And the internet hardly existed back then. Mobile I don't think I even had a mobile phone at the time. Yeah. I then filed a story for the national news that morning and we let off um, the sunrise news. Did you type that in your typewriter? Was it? I <laughs> 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 might have scribbled it in a notebook, actually. I remember doing oh, a radio really? interview. Yeah, yep, I remember yep, yep. doing a radio interview and then we got in the car and we went back and it was still, I've talked in the podcast about how eerie it was that night. It was still foggy and cold, but incredibly foggy. And I still remember that drive back to Childers, but approaching the town, just seeing backpackers still on the side of the street, still trying to absorb and, you know, mm. um, Someone in the podcast described it as having that thousand-yard stare, and, it, and that's really accurate. Turning up and seeing those people, yeah. just trying to process it, and, and by the time I got there, they the realization generally was kicking in that people were missing. Yeah, you know, the, what the enormity of that looked like, but we certainly knew that it was in double figures. If they, if they weren't on the side of the street or hadn't hadn't been accounted for, there was a fair chance they were still in that building. So, you know, that that smacks of a fairly serious incident right in front of us there. For sure. Imagery used on your artwork, Paul, is so ghost-like and you I really had to look at in detail to realize that it, is it the actual survivors with blankets around them yeah that's <gasps> one of the that's one of the still frames from Mick's vision that Mick filmed that night so airy yeah and and so you can see while it's it's obviously aged it's you know analog footage but I don't think that magnifies in any way just how foggy it was or anything that is very accurate of how foggy it was, those backpackers sitting around, those emergency services lights in the distance and them just standing there. It was incredibly cold mm. at the time. I mean, people have this illusion that in, you know, in, in, in Queensland. <laughs> Always in the, sunny, right? <laughs> it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't get cold. I can, I can tell you, and Childers is particularly cold. It's inland and, and it's got sort of valleys around it and that, and it gets particularly cold. When the clouds are gone, when it's just the open sky, we've we've travelled all through Queensland, Ollie and I for work, so we we definitely know that it can get extremely freezing in certain places. Yeah, and I mean we're talking the twenty third of June, so we're you know right in the heart of of winter. Um, and these young men and women, shock makes your body body react in different ways as well. But mm-hmm. just, you know, stand there with these thin blankets, they had no clothes. St Vincent the Paul store went and opened its doors so they could go in and hate clothes, yeah, out- outfits and stuff, at least yeah. to have something. I mean, I've I've backpacked backpacked Europe, and I I can't imagine if I if I was trapped in a fire and walked away with nothing, and and that feeling of helplessness, what that must be like. Mm. You know, I think say I'm in the middle of Germany, and and that happened to me, and I think I've got nothing, I've got absolutely nothing, and that's yeah. what it would have been like for all these young men and women um, who got out that night, feeling of helplessness, you know, mm. and um, and they still grapple with that, you know, not just the the trauma of being stuck in the fire, but that those moments, and that's why they're incredibly grateful for how that town wrapped Rally together. around them and, yeah, and, and helped them out, yeah, fed them, clothed them, bathed them, still continue to support them and talk to them as their own 20 years on. One question I did have for you. So around the podcast, what you did really well was capture people's sensory memories, the smell that they experienced, the, how, how dark it was when they were in that hallway and how suffocating the smoke was. Now, you arrived there at sort of the break of dawn. Do you have any really like, overwhelming sensory memories from that day? Any smells that kind of come to mind for you? Any kind of sensory memories that uh, t- t- trigger you to remember that time when you first arrived in Childers? Yeah, probably I'm, I'm immune to the triggering these days, but I do remember for years after you could still smell it, the, that smouldering smell of, of smoke and, you know, 
you know mm-hmm. the, the the hostel was a was a mix of different timbers and you know yep. plastics and you know synthetics and all those different things so it did have that smell about it i mean there's people who talk about when they went in and to do you know body recovery and that and you know and they're certainly still acutely affected by by that about that yep. century century trigger i go back to children's a fair bit because i've got family there and whenever i'm there i go back and, and make sure i pop into the memorial to pay my respects and just take a moment and i can and i get different flashback moments every time i'm there you know even just standing on the street and i, I quite often would have stand across the road and just and just look and mm. you know, i do have moments i can i can remember little pieces and it, it always seems to be something different oh um, really um okay. yeah and you know it could just be you know someone might walk past and they and the the way they're walking, I remember that that's how someone was walking at that time. And, yeah. You know, it's, um, and I think that's fairly, I think most people will tell you that's fairly similar through, you know, major crisis events, yep. you know, that you'll, you'll have a recall moment. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. The other part was that you mentioned that the, the community was so supportive, obviously, to the backpackers. And you, you did touch on this at times through the podcast about maybe a different approach to the people from media. Though we... And the podcast explore how supportive the community was towards the backpackers. Talk to us about what it was like being a reporter in that town at that time, and how you were treated by like the local community, and like, what was your experience of being there. See, I came at it from a slightly different angle because I was local media. Sure. So, so there was different levels of media. I guess you had the local media. Well, actually, there was different levels of local media even because you had your local little children's paper, which sure. um, Wayne who got Hardwick all the exclusives, was. right? <laughs> well, Wayne was the editor, and, and Wayne's in the podcast and speaks fantastically about mm. it. So you had Wayne, but then half an hour away was the Bundaberg media, and and that was essentially our local patch. But then you had Brisbane media, and then you had the international media coming in. So all these different levels. Now people have different ways, really, um, of approaching it. Your British tabloids are very ruthless, very, you know, have angles and different deadlines as well. You know, time zones mean different deadlines. So at any point in the day, there were deadline pressures for different different media. For me, look, I look back on it, you know, when I, when I, I said that I was so new to working in the media, I actually think 20 years on that's painted me in a better picture because, you know what, I was so new and so raw to it. I actually didn't know to go and get in people's faces and, and try and extract, you know, little sound bites and, and nuggets um in order to potentially sensationalize something yep i didn't really know to do that because i was so new at the game 20 years on i'm actually glad that that was that was was because when some backpackers still have some fairly jaded jaded memories of the way they felt like they were treated by media you know i can wholeheartedly say that i wasn't one of those people (laughs) you know who who applied any of that sort of pressure to them Mm. Yeah, sometimes yeah, knowing not knowing is a is a far better thing, and and that kind of came across from one of those backpackers when they interacted with Princess Princess Anne, and you know how they they just didn't know that that was the protocol, so they're up there touching her or on the shoulder. <laughs> yeah, and and like I've got a I've got a one of those massive big flip chart post-it note things that I've drawn up all the the episode guides on it, and it and it evolved, but you know Princess Anne was one of the squares and. And when I look at it, I go, gee, this was this was one of those events that had so many different pieces to it that it continually evolved yeah. across twenty, you know, twenty years. The reason why it needed to be twenty-two episodes to because examples like that to me show that this was more than just a fire and a tragedy. It actually that led to led to Princess Anne coming in. It led to that memory. It led to the, Rob, the the Dutch guy who talks about 
interacting with Princess Anne and asking her if she was supporting Holland because she was wearing <laughs> orange in the European Championships at the time. I mean, Rob's gone on to a really successful career as a, as a in the Dutch military police. Um, oh, wow. He's, he's living in Curaçao at the moment, which is Dutch sovereignty island in the Caribbean. And he says, you know, my, my career in the Dutch military largely was I was intrigued and fascinated by the investigation process that happened having gone through Childers, leading to a to a career in, in policing and investigative wow. work, you know. So there's things that if people have, have taken out of it and, you know, it's helped frame their life in mm. not necessarily positive ways, but, you know, Rob's an example of one where it's, it's helped lead him to the path where it's taken him. How do you think it changed your life? Um, look, it was definitely a definitely a, a, a fast track, you know, journalism fast tracking 101, to be honest, you know, and there was one point in the podcast where I said I, I felt like I learned more in the first three days of Childers than I did in, in you know, my entire university degree. Um, you know, you can't buy, you know, lived experience and time on the ground and, and absorbing how, I guess I was just a sponge, you know. It was people like Kim Skubris and Carl Stefanovic who were there, who were interviewed in the podcast where I just kind of, looked and learned and in a way made sure that I wasn't embarrassing myself or the network I was representing <laughs> or, or, you know, or the people who thought I was better than I probably thought I, I was myself. It was only about a year after the year or two after the Childers fire, there was another major, major tragedy in, in Queensland where a British backpacker was murdered. He was thrown off a bridge in Bundaberg. And I guess when that happened, the children's experience, I, I was suddenly, once again, I was the first reporter there, you know, in the hot seat of telling the story to the world of this major international incident, you know, a foreign a foreign backpacker murdered. And then obviously children's was referenced again because, you know, what is this part of the world? You know, why, why are backpackers, you know, losing their life? I was far better equipped to be able to take on a story like that, you know, and I... I'm, I'm very wary as a as a journal. I think you've got to be wary that you're not telling war stories as a you know as a, as a bit of personal credibility. Certainly in the media game, if I if people are aware that I covered the children's story, people know it, and and people know that that was a major episode to to report on. I think it was a it fast tracked me when it comes to empathy and. To, kid from regional Queensland who really hadn't experienced a great deal of tragedy in my life and still haven't touched wood. So seeing something like that was a real, it escalated my learning when it came to crisis and mm. mass grief. I could feel your empathy for the survivors in the interviews that you did. I mean, I cried multiple times and I could feel your pain as well as the survivors' pain and also the families of the deceased. Yeah. And it was such an emotional podcast to listen to. Yeah, I had my mind. Like, I, I certainly had my moments when I was piecing it together. There were days, and it, and it was random stuff, you know. I, you know, probably things that you wouldn't necessarily go, oh, that's the bit that you're crying or whatever. But me piecing it together, it, I just, you know, there were days where I'd sit here on a Saturday and Sunday and or late at night because obviously I was working full time as well. So I'd do it late at night and on weekends. And, and I guess just depending what had gone on during the day or where your headspace was or, or how much of that content I'd listened to. And there were a couple of moments where I, I did lose it on my own and I'd sort of just sit and, you know, have my own, my own private moment of grief and outpouring. And, and I needed that. You know, I absolutely mm. did. And I've made friends out of it. Friends that I, I knew as names on paper and in witness account reports and those sorts of things who I now genuinely call friends and I keep yeah. in touch with. 
And so when I built up that rapport and this this level of understanding their story and, you know, it was a six to nine month journey of going mm. through and, you know, me giving them updates. Oh, you know, the pocket, it's tracking well. Oh, we'll be releasing it now, whatever. We became friends so then to go back and hear them tell their story and their grief even magnified that even more for me to know that it felt like it was someone that i'd known for a long long time that i'm telling their story but as i said i i treated it as a very humbling experience but also a privilege to be for them to feel comfortable to open up to me and, and be the one empowered to to tell that story yeah and you did it so respectfully i think that's why like when we talk about that emotion that you showed there was so much respect in terms of allowing people the space to to feel and to grieve or to you know back it was crucial to me i that was the promise i gave them right at the start i just said you know and if there's if there's something that you feel like even down the track oh look i wasn't comfortable with some of that stuff or there's things i don't want to you know there's things that there's things that haven't appeared in the podcast because out of respect to some people and some incidents that happened, I just didn't feel like the podcast would be any better by putting them in. And I didn't think it would do favours to some mm. people to actually put some of that stuff in. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that because that was crucial to me to, mm. to treat it respectfully and, and feel like people, you know, some of the survivors have said, we, we feel like we've now got an archive that we can genuinely play for our own kids so they now understand what mummy and daddy went through 20 years ago when we were young and backpacking you know and if that's the marker that that they feel like it's a it's an accurate and respectful poignant reflection of what happened then yeah i'm proud of that and i'm happy with that how wonderful it's like a memorial in itself yeah yeah and there is a room obviously i i talk about the memorial in in childers that's been you know developed next time i'm there i'm checking it out mate like sure it's i think it's been um ingrained in my brain from the 22 episodes and next time you're in children's make sure you go there yeah like. because for me that was important you know one of the one of the things was that i remember talking to bill trevor and steve johnson from the council when i was in children's back in december december 2019 obviously when the world was a much different place and, and i was there at christmas time and i sat down and had a coffee and and we talked about how the the 20th anniversary i guess commemorations were going to look like and, and some of the plans that they had. And I did flag with them then. I said, you do realise that the man who lit this fire, and I'm not going to say his name because he doesn't deserve it, the mm. man who lit this fire is due for a parole hearing and he, he's 20 years as he's incarcerated, yeah. is nearly up. I said that I think that what's going to happen is media are going to focus more on the injustice of his potential release around the 20-year anniversary then they will more so than what they will around the people who were in it or the or the people who survived or the you know the 15 people who passed away focus being on the wrong thing right exactly and yeah. i said look I, I just know that that's where media are going to skew their story that did happen i mean the 20th anniversary commemoration didn't happen because of you know the covid-19 Mm. pandemic that we're dealing with but so for me it was important to be able to tell the story of the people that that kind of took away some of the focus on on the criminality and the and the perpetrator yep that to me was important but the memorial up there in Childers when it was developed the families of the 15 victims were, were very adamant that it, they wanted it to be about their children not about the fire and obviously the the survivors as well don't feature in the memorial up there so it's about the 15 people but and it's beautiful but 20 years on we do know sadly that the story has skipped a generation in a way and there are people in children's school kids who wouldn't even know that this major moment in australian history happened in their backyard so for me the the podcast 
really part of the exercise really was about making sure that yes it's important to study what foreign history looks like in ancient history and all those things at school but it's i think it's really important that you know people know what happened in their own community um, yeah. you know as as recently as 20 years ago so it's around creating a history piece and, a, and, a, yeah. and an archive yeah, the, yeah. The, and so the file, the audio files which I've created are actually being given to the council who run the memorial wow. so that they can be used in the memorial itself. Yep. Now, how that how that takes shape we're still, is still being developed, but, you know, the opportunity is now there to have some sort of audio audio recognition of the story as well. And that, I think there is add so many layers to the art installation and, you know, the memorial that is there could be done in such a really powerful way. That's, that's awesome. That's cool. And, you know, one of the other great things about, what the podcast has done, and I, you know, I talked about COVID nineteen before, and you know, there's so many people had made plans to go to Childers for the 20th anniversary, June 23, 2020, and you know, that couldn't happen because of travel, you know, travel restrictions mm-hmm. and and so forth. So, but what the podcast did that was never intended that we we only re- reflecting on just recently was it actually brought a whole heap of people together in a very different way. Yeah. And so suddenly there was a connection through stories and, you know, different backpackers who are in the podcast are going, oh, I'm in the podcast and they're in the podcast and now I've actually joined the dots and I didn't know they went through that. Oh, wow. And so they've reached out to each other and go, hey, I resonated with your story. Oh, me too. Gosh. I resonated with yours. And so in a really different oh, so way, special. through COVID-19, the podcast has actually taken the commemoration of the 20th anniversary in a very yeah. different direction that was never intended. But allowed it to be recognized in in a way that we never really thought of you've taken a digital which allows it to be international right so those connections that someone might make at the memorial itself they can be done now online and i mean that's really powerful if as you said is it rob who's over in i forgot the island that you mentioned but curacao but yeah if he's in curacao and someone in australia and they're connecting some way that that's extremely powerful man you should be so proud and you know and we took out of fifteen victims, only two of those were Australians, mm. and they, you know, and they grew up in the same household. Those twin mm. sisters. So, thirteen of those other fifteen victims were from foreign countries. So, it's this is a genuine international story. You know, I look at the the podcast charts, and you can see where where the podcast is. You know, how it's being being received abroad, and you know, there's forty or so countries around the world that have actually the charts show where this thing is being listened to. Wow, and, cool! You know, well countries done. That, countries that aren't even there was no, I, I don't think there was anyone from Spain in the building, for example, but there's, the charts tell me that people in Spain are listening to it. You know, so um, exciting. You know, in Israel and, you know, Hong Kong and some of these these different countries. I love looking at those analytics. Like when you look across the world and you see the different countries that are sort of jumping online, you're like, how did you get a link to this? Or how did you figure out about this? So, And I'm always intrigued by how people find it. I mean, it, this project was never around the metrics, mm. but but the metrics mean that the story's out there and people are hearing it. And, and that's where the intent was. It was for people to remember the victims mm. and to get a better understanding of what happened. And not just that, get more of an understanding around what the perpetrator what he what sort of depraved individual he was before he got to Childers yep. and and what potentially for you know made him do such a drastic thing which caused such incredible incredible trauma and you know and tragedy. And one of the things I said to Ollie when we were reviewing the podcast, I loved how you didn't and you've made it really clear as to probably why now, but how you didn't focus on him at all. I would have said probably the first eight, nine episodes alone, you hadn't even really made much reference to him whatsoever. And I thought 
the fact you were told the story about him later in the podcast helped make a full picture, you know, paint a full picture. But that respect that you showed by not giving him that attention in those initial episodes, I just thought was so well done. Look, yeah. I, I thought it was a, there was certainly some thought put into that initially. And I thought it was a risky move to not, to not bring the crime into focus early. Um, mm. But it was a deliberate move from, from in piecing it together to make sure that it was about the people who were in there, the good people who were in there. Yeah. Uh, and all but one person who was in there that night was a good person. Yeah. Mm. An amazing person. So, and that, and it was around telling their story and, you know, and the acts of heroics, you know, mm-hmm. I, it wasn't until I'd actually got a lot of the interviews together that you know, I remember sitting down one day going, okay, this is great. I've got an idea in my mind, but how does this thing actually start now? You know, I think you can have, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like, you know, I'm one of those people who's never never got into Game of Thrones because it feels so, I, I didn't get on it initially and now it feels like I've got so much work ahead of me. In a way, like when I had the podcast, I had more than 50 interviews and all this stuff and, and then it was like, oh, this feel, now I've done, I've essentially done the easy bit. I've spoken to people. Now I've actually got to turn this into something that's, yep. you know, that, that people want to hear and it, and it does it properly and that I can talk a bit, you know, talk all the talk, but now I've actually got to walk the walk. And, and that's when I, I just thought, uh, you know, the firefighters were the first responders. They were the ones who mm-hmm. put their own life on the line to go in and help others and started it. And it just flowed from there. And I, and I'm, I wouldn't change a thing when I look mm. back on it. I think Wicked. Um, that was the right way to start it. Yeah, for sure. I'm imagining one of those, like all those maths equations, like flowing past your head and you try to kind of decipher the code and figure out how to bring it all together. Yeah. If I had a big, bigger house, I might've turned into Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting. But I, um, but to give an indication of the shoebox that I'm living in, it was merely a, a post-it flip chart. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's fair. You tell the story of the survivors and different people's experiences from the fireys who were first responders to the news reporters. And something that James and I talk about explicitly in our review is how you paint such a vivid picture of Childers and the people of Childers. And I was just wondering if you could give us an insight into because you knew Childers before the fire and since the fire and how the fire changed the town itself? Yeah, look, it has changed because it, it decentralised the backpacking community. That, that hostel is smack bang in the middle of town. It's, it's on, a, on the highway to the point where when trucks go past, they do actually put some movement into the memorial, um, mm. the, glass, the, the eight metre glass pane because it's right on the highway. There's no way around it. You, you drive that street. So that in itself created a logistical nightmare when the fire happens, you know, having to block off the national highway. So right in the middle of town is where the backpacker community was. And, you know, and we're talking, you know, 80 to 90 people in there at, at, at any time who are going off and drinking at the pubs, buying their meals, going to the little corner stores, the butcher next door, the bakery, and going into this mix of, of young vibrant people who are going off and, 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 and making the farming communities work by keeping them active. They're the, the labour that go and pick fruit and that. Mm-hmm. So the system just worked. You know, suddenly you had farms didn't have the, the manual manual hands available to be able to help them out and that you didn't have the this little system that works when you go in and check in at the hostel and they'll find your work the next day everyone gets on the bus and they all come home together and they end up having a few beers in the pub across the across the road yeah and so the mechanics of how children's operated did actually did fracture a little bit as a result of it so there has been a new hostel built on the back of the on on some land that was behind the the existing palace mm-hmm. so there is a hostel there but not the same as when it was right on the highway and yep. people could just 
just move around you know so now people are staying on the outskirts a little bit more but you know caravan parks and, and those type of things look i think people around the town a lot of the people who were there then are still there and they and they still are acutely aware you know donna in the podcast talked about every single year when there's a milestone you know coming up to the anniversary it gets brought up again so they've chosen to to remember it fondly where possible Mm. And I think they need to. That's really important. One point, I don't know if you guys picked up on it, but my dad, I managed to, my, my, my dad's in the podcast at one point and I got him to tell the story about how they were, because I remembered that he, he told me they, they went and traveled in India early, earlier this year, right at the start of the year. And, and he talked about how they were in a hotel lobby and making small talk. I was, oh, that was your dad. Childers. Oh yeah. And he says, oh, Childers. Oh, that's where the fire was. I mean, so 20 years on, my, you know, they brought that up that, and, and that's in, in, in India. Yeah, you know? that's... So it's still a punchline, you know, we, and we know that. You know, we think about Port Arthur, we think about Beaconsfield, some of these mm-hmm. places where these major, major tragedies and crises happened. Childers isn't ever po- possibly going to shake that, and potentially this podcast will, in fact, you know, keep that bubbling along a little bit. So let's choose to remember it fondly for the great work that the community did and mm-hmm. think that, they are forever applauded for the great work they did in in helping these survivors out and continue continue to do so. Mm. Now, I know you love a good quote. I was reading through one of your blogs and came across the the quote by, is it George Halas or George Hellas? Yeah. Uh, the nobody who ever gave his best ever regretted it. Well, from my perspective, you've done like a fantastic job, right? There's nothing that you should regret. But I wonder, from your perspective, is there anything you wish you could have done differently with this particular podcast? Is there is there something that would have... An interview you wanted to get that you couldn't or... Yeah, look, there's potentially one. And yet at the same time, I'm glad I didn't do it. So I'm kind of torn. You know, I've yep. got... I'm, part of me wishes I did it. And that is that um, Robert Long never spoke. Robert Long's mm. never spoken. He didn't. He didn't testify to police. Sorry, he didn't give a statement to police. He didn't testify in court. And so I did have in mind, and I actually got the forms to go and visit him. And I went to Brisbane to go get some interviews. And I had in mind that I was going to go to prison and get on his visitation list. And and I thought, look, he's probably not going to speak to me, but at least I'll be able to give the listeners an idea of the man that sat across from me. Mm. And, and in my words, I could articulate how how he was what his body language was did mm-hmm. he say anything to me what was that look look in his eye and um in the end some logistics actually got in the way of it happening and when those logistics got in the way i, I remember thinking i think this is i think this is fate and a bit of karma actually yep. telling me that it's not the right move so when i was piecing it together there, there's an episode with lauren and uh and christine christine was his mm-hmm. de facto and lauren is christine's daughter which did come to the fore late in the piece. Their stories were really powerful. I yeah. literally did the interviews and we and I turned that, that episode around and slotted it in and sort of just juggled some pieces later that I'd, mm. I'd already written and we changed I changed a few of the things there and slotted that in. And I, I thought that it was I almost didn't use that episode. But I thought really? it was important yeah. to to give the listeners an understanding of the form that that, that man had. Yep. That it wasn't just about what he did in Childers, that there was there was a cycle and a continuation of of um, of crime. Yeah, from my perspective, it allowed me not to see him in any way, shape, or form as a victim. If that makes sense, you know, sometimes you might form a narrative based on if, if you've got a, a history of that kind of behaviour. It allowed me to continue to look at him as a villain in this in this scenario. You know, and I did the same thing. I, I probably for twenty years have, you know, part of me was like, well. 
you know, did this just go too far? Was he just trying to scare people? I had I think everyone's throwing those ideas up in their head, you know, was this just something that, you know, he was disgruntled, he was itinerant, yeah. he was a loner, felt left out. Is this just something he did to seek some attention? I truly despised him after I spoke to Lauren and Christine. Mm. I, I truly did. For the first time in 20 years, I genuinely had no part of that left in me. Because you, you try as human beings, right, to justify people's behavior by humanizing them, by trying to, you know, create excuses. Because I think the human brain doesn't like to immediately go to the fact that someone's just an evil person or someone has that, you know... And yeah, so in, in terms of allowing the, them to tell their story the way that you did, for me, it's like, well, if you've got a history of this kind of stuff and yeah, it, it, it allows you to, to feel that way. Yeah, I guess what I tried to do is articulate the effect of the fire in so many different ways. And I, and I, I look at someone like Jessica Vegan, who is in episode four, who for me, the, some of the hardest things for me to listen back to were, were Jess talking about when she was doing a university degree and going to class and coming home and and then being in a in a coil on her bed, you know, yep. every single day for years, and just being in such a state of depression and sadness, and not being able to really change that, and mm-hmm. it was a pattern which she which couldn't change. So there, so there was that. But then coming out of it again, so she was a survivor, and that's her account. But then to speak to Ken Morris, who lost his daughter mm-hmm. um, Natalie, and when Ken told me that he went to his daughter's gravesite every single day, rain, hail, shine, snow, sleet, you name it, in Wales for 11 or 12 years. You know, for me, there's all these different, this one act of selfishness caused so many different levels of of reactionary grief. And so I, I thought that was really important to tell that. And then, you know, Lauren and Christine's story is another example of what this man had done to them uh, from coming at it from a completely different you know lauren and christine weren't in childers but i thought they were relevant to the story in mm. the long run even journalists kim carl myself you know we all ultimately have been affected by it in some way as i said we, we, we don't come at it from the same level of grief or trauma but we've got our own lived experience and our own reason to for it to still linger within us yep what do you think the chances are of Robert Long getting parole? Well, unfortunately, the legal system probably probably means that he will get out at some point. You, you would think so. Mm. I mean, you know, he was given a sentence and he serves that sentence. However, I think there's things that haven't been taken into account and it's things like, you know, he, he's, never been, he's never been tried or called to question on the attempts that were made on the 69 survivors. You know, mm. he, he could, I think... In a way, he could feel himself very lucky that only 15 mm. people lost their lives that night. And we should all feel fortunate that that was the case. Bless the memory and the soul of 15 who did die. But he was charged with murder and arson, two counts of murder and arson, you know, for the two West Australian girls. Yep. I think that he managed to managed to kill 15 people, but clearly he attempted to kill everyone who was in that building. Could have been far worse, yeah. So there's been no attempted murder charges. There's been, you know, his sentence certainly doesn't reflect, you know, the the trauma that people like Jess and Tia and Rob and... And when someone in the podcast broke it down into one one year and a half or one year and a bit per per person, it really hit me heavy. I was like... That was David and Deirdre O'Keefe, David's, Julie O'Keefe's brother, Mm. Irish family. And that's incredibly, that was incredibly moving to sit across from them and and have them break it down like that and and spend a day with that family and, you know, talk through 
what they were going through and what they still go through. Yeah. Yeah. From our perspective, obviously you haven't been able to hear the review yet because it has, hasn't been released, but we just think you did such a fantastic job with bringing this podcast together. The way that our podcast runs, we're all about promoting podcasts that we think people should be listening to. Uh, Childers is one of those podcasts. It did so many things, I think from so many different angles, but one of the things we talk about in the podcast review explicitly is like, you, it, there's an educational piece in terms of fire safety in Australia that I think you whether it was intentional or not, you do a really good job highlighting maybe where some of the gaps were and what some of those kind of changes or improvements have now been. That And just an awareness of, of fire safety as well. Just that kind of awareness piece when you're going to these ran, like to, to hotels or to venues like um, the hostel. You just did a really good job, not only touching on remembering people fondly, but also educating people in that space. And yeah, the way it's come together, man, you've done a really good job and you should be extremely proud of yourself. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that, that was that was possibly going to be how it and you know what was the outcome what did it all mean mm. you know, what, let, let's be sure that you know the people who lost their lives that weren't you know that there was no outcome from it so yeah. safety was a big part of that there was a fire at a backpacker hostel in Bundaberg recently mm-hmm. uh, half an hour away and yeah. every single person in that hostel got out mm-hmm. all escaped and weren't harmed I had some fantastic messages from people the day after that fire who told me that they'd been listening to my podcast <sighs> And because of the podcast, they were extra vigilant when it came to knowing where their exit points were and making sure that the fire alarms worked and looking for the illuminated exit signs. And so, well, you never think that something like that could potentially happen, particularly not only hours after you've been listening about a podcast, which talks about somewhere half an hour away, which is the same scenario. When When that fire happened in Bundaberg, they knew... A, not to mess around, and B, how to get out. How fantastic. Today, living and telling the story about it as a result. That's so wow. powerful. That is, wow. um, that was really, really, yeah, really rewarding and really humbling yeah. to, to hear. Now, not many people can say that, Paul, that their podcast has potentially saved people's lives. That's a pretty impressive feat. Yeah, there's different things, different ways that this podcast has impacted on people. That's certainly one of them. That I had a, I had one gentleman reach out to me on Twitter and we ended up taking the conversation private because I said, make sure, you know, delete your public message because <laughs> you're going to get hassled here. And we, and we engaged in a conversation in private and he said, my wife was in that building that night in Childers and she got out quite quickly, but has been profoundly impacted by how it's, it's impacted her for the 20 years. Mm-hmm. But because she got out quite quickly, she's never felt worthy of really carrying that grief and trauma because she's like, well, A, people died. B, there were other people that nearly died and went through the most insane anxiety. She got out quite quickly. So she's never felt worthy of carrying that trauma. But he said, as a result of the podcast and hearing it, for the first time in 20 years, she has gone and actively sought some counselling and some help. And I thought, that is... If it achieved one thing and it can help people like that, I look at Jess who, who's never told her story until she spoke to me, hadn't even told her best friends that she was in it, you know, has, has now found some power and some strength by opening that door to her story where she is a much stronger individual by her own admission, walks taller, is, uh, is so connected with the story and has used that now at a professional level to make herself and position herself far better going forward. She's done more media interviews. She's prepared to talk about it. And she said to me, for the first time in 20 years, I feel like there's a weight off my shoulders. 
Oh, and to hear that is really powerful mm. and, and really rewarding. And, and I, um, a friend of mine wrote some books, a guy named Paul Kennedy who works in ABC Breakfast, and Paul Kennedy was, was there in Childers at the time as a young reporter as well. And, and, and I spoke to him, and he wrote some books about the Melbourne Storm salary cap scandal mm. in the NRL years ago. And I remember talking to him and I said, oh, PK, I, I just got to, I think there's a point where I've got to tell myself I've got enough here. You know, I kept more doors that open. I'd go do more interviews and that. And he said, he said, I can tell you that he had the same thought when he was doing the Melbourne Storm books. And then he said, but at the end, I can tell you, you will look back on it and you'll be so grateful that you did continue to push and you continue to do those interviews and you'll be grateful. And I can, and he's absolutely spot on. It was sage advice at the time and, and it's helped you know, I can look back on it now going, you know, your question, is there any more people I would have wanted to interview? Mm. There's so many similar stories, but I think we've managed to capture what was going on in the building, what happened outside the building, what happened beyond and before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your, your karma brownie points uh, must be just roll, rolling in, man, in terms of the impact you've had on people. Yeah. He hearing that kind of insight in terms of the feedback that you've personally been getting just takes your podcast to a whole other level. So amazing job, Paul. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I, I can therefore, hand on heart, be quite sure that it wasn't you two who left the one out of five star reviews on my, <laughs> on my, on my Apple podcast. Oh, hey, mate, there's haters there's out there. There's one. always going to be a hater. There's, there's always, always going to be a hater. Yeah, um, look, I figured it wasn't. Maybe it's not everyone's story to want to listen to. But might have been Rob Long. You never know. Um. <laughs> let, let's hope that he's not afforded the, you know, the the, the um, luxury, the yeah. privilege of, of access to digital content. I, I should, I should actually pay respect to a guy named Zoltan Fetcho who did a lot of. I was going to ask actually, your editor. Yeah, so Zoltan, Zoltan did the sound design, the composition, and the editing work on the podcast, and he's an incredibly talented individual. Him and I just found some synergy through some early conversations, okay. and um, and I felt really, I. I his brief that he was given by me initially was I need someone who is really going to emotionally invest in this project because it means the world to me and I, mm -hmm. and I need it done. If, if we feel like we've, you know, we're, we're watching the clock on how many hours we're doing it, then, you know, that that's not really the person I want to work with. I want to make sure that we just go the extra mile to get it done. And, and, mm -hmm. and, um, and I remember early in the piece, Zoltan told me a story about how he's a sound guy and he's and he's passionate about sound and, and sound integrity. And he said, oh, he said, look, and he lives in Melbourne and he said, look, I could, I really want to capture what the streets would have sounded like at the time. So he said, look, you know, wherever I go, I always take my sound recorder with me because I never know when I'm going to hear something that might be worth using. He said, I've only actually ever been as far north as Brisbane, so I haven't been to Childers. So I could go out and record some birds and stuff here in Melbourne and in my backyard, but you know, actually, that's they're not the same birds getting mm. children. So what he did was he went online and he he researched what the what basically the wildlife in the in the trees in Childers would have sounded Gosh. like. Wow! And so when you're hearing bird noises and so forth as you know, backing ambience, yep, that's an accurate snapshot that Zoltan's poured the time and research wow. into into doing little one percenters like that i think yeah. are, are what i really appreciated that's the effort you want from your sound designer he goes probably no one will know that i've done that or but that's the type of person i think you want to work with you want yeah. to get great results you know having someone like zoltan working hand in glove on this project with me you know certainly did make it the product that it was yeah mm. have you got any more podcasts in you paul yeah look i hope so this is certainly 
um, unearthed a passion for me. I guess it's rewarding and people are, people are reaching out and saying, hey, love, loved what you did. Uh, what's the next project? Make sure we know about it because we want to tune into it. We like your style or we like the way you went about telling the story. You know, where Childers is a little bit different for me is I've got an absolute personal connection to mm. it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and look, it was, I'm not going to say it was 20 years in the making, but 20 years on, we finally were at a point where felt like it was a, it was a good time to tell the story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I hope so. I think that, I think that what I've learned out of it, and it's a little, a little trick I learned way back about a month into my career as a cadet newspaper reporter was, you know, there's far more mileage out of telling things from a human lens as a firm believer that humans are far more interesting than policy and infrastructure mm-hmm. and strategies. So make it about humans and tell the story. And that's something that I've adopted. I'd certainly adopted with Childers. And I, and I think when you start telling interesting stories about people, people will hear them if they're done in a good way and, the, and there's quality about them. So yeah, a couple of little, little ideas bubbling along, but I absolutely have enjoyed taking a couple of weeks break since Childers. For sure. Well, well, for further, I suppose, support, we loved it and we think you've got a real talent for bringing podcasts together. So we look forward to your to your next project. I appreciate it. I appreciate the support. You know, it's, I remember saying to one of the backpackers right at the start, I said, uh, and they've actually re- recalled this story in the early days of me talking to them. I said to them, this will be the number one podcast in Australia. And they went, Oh, yeah, and they've actually recalled it to me and said, "Remember when you told me this would be number one podcast in Australia?" We actually went, "Yeah, yeah, okay." And we agreed with you. And I said, "You know, in my mind, in my mind, I knew that this story was worthy of of reaching that type of mm-hmm. that type of height." Mm-hmm. But I ne- probably never thought that, as an independent release, me first time at really doing something of this magnitude. I thought, look, this is probably going to be one of those great stories that just doesn't end up finding people or people don't find it. But what this has taught me is that if it's good enough, people will talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, and I've been asked since um, the success of Childers, which, you know, did go to number one on yeah. the charts, was, well, what's the secret? And while I don't think there's a magic pill, I think you, want, you really want people talking about you for the right reasons, mm-hmm. um, about about your product. How often have we seen on our social media where people will go, oh, hey, I'm looking to binge something on Netflix. Anyone got mm. any suggestions on it? You know, what's a great series to watch? And that's how those things gather momentum. I think the same principle applies to podcasts. Mm. Hey, anyone got a great podcast, you know, to listen to? You want to be that podcast that people suggest or at least on that list. Well, that's exactly what happened in your case, Paul, because I listened and it went straight on the list to recommend to James before I think maybe episode two or three, I'd already reached out to you and said, yep, this is definitely going to be one that we review. Is that going to be okay? So It's been really cool to mm. the number of people who've reached out to, to you know, say that they appreciated it. That's outstanding, man. And, and uh, guaranteed that praise will continue. The power of a story like this, and I, I know you referred to it previously as like the little boat that could, you know, how you were outranking all the, a little tugboat that could outranking all the kind of bigger pro- podcasts. Yeah, when a story is told in such a powerful way, it's got the capacity to sort of just be out there and last a lifetime, man. So, well, well done again. Like, just can't, can't say that enough. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the, the little boat that could analogy really was around, you know, when I looked at the charts, it was surrounded by so many podcasts that were, you know, when you go on websites. And, uh, yeah, the Joe know, Rogan one up there, didn't you? Yeah, like, you know, um, full of, yeah they're full yeah. of it. Yeah, they're, they're getting afforded the advertising because they're with the major platforms and the major mm. distributors and that. And, and, you know, and that's, and that's fine. So, but to, to 
see Childers climb and it climbed mm-hmm. really rapidly and, and suddenly be ahead of all those. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Zoltan and I, there's so many text messages between <laughs> us going, well, have you seen this? Have you seen this? And obviously strange times, but there were, we had a family Zoom party with a bottle of champagne to celebrate when it went number one. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, which was really nice, you know, to be able to connect all the family because, you know, you can't do these things just on your own. You need... Mm-hmm. I need support of my family that, to be able to pick up the slack in areas where I should be contributing in other areas in order to be able to do a project like this. So Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we just want to say a massive thank you for mm-hmm. obviously being on um, on there with us today. We've Obviously, we've had the, the brilliant Paul Cochran online with us, uh, whose podcast reached number one in Australia and in other places around the world as well. Up to date, has had over 260,000 downloads. That's probably larger now, isn't it? Yeah, Even- it's getting close to 300 now. So. Ooh. In over 40 countries around the world. Again, outstanding having you on, on air with us today and really good to get to know the person behind the, the Childers podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys, and particularly for your support. I, I, you know, I know we've been speaking for a few weeks now and you know, your support is, uh, is certainly appreciated. So, oh, th- thanks yeah. for... And thanks love for your own <laughs> show too. <laughs> oh, thank you. Awesome. Um, and we are done from my side. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. And thank you so much for bringing the podcast Childers to to the world, because I think lots of people have had a huge learning from your work. So well done. Yeah, well done, buddy. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Paul. Have a great Talk day. Thanks for your time. See you. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Bye. 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 A huge thank you to Paul Cochran. Once again, you did an amazing job with the Childers podcast and we look forward to all your future projects. If you've enjoyed today's bonus episode, feel free to like, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whichever app you're listening to us on. You can also get in touch with us on our socials on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Alternatively, you can drop us an email at myfriendhasnever at gmail.com. As always, a big thank you to MJ from Multidesign for our music production. All right, James, I'll talk to you on the other side. Talk to you on the other side, buddy.